All right, the sermon series is entitled, We Hope in the Lord, Truths for a Troubled World. This is part two, entitled, The God Who Gets Me. We are looking through Hebrews, and if you were here last week, you know that we're not going in order. Uh, Last week, we were in Hebrews 6 and 7. This week, we're in Hebrews 4 and 5. We're actually going a little bit backwards, like a good Hebrew. So anyway, um, my sources include William Barclay's The Daily Study Bible Series, uh, Raymond Brown, The Message of Hebrews, uh, Lawrence O. Richards, The Teacher's Commentary, Edgar Andrews, A Glorious High Throne, which is a commentary from the Wellwind Commentary Series, and Simon Kistemacher, his New Testament commentary on the book of Hebrews. I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, really, the first few verses of this text are my, some of my favorite verses because it shows the duality of Jesus as not only man, but also God, and uh, really encourages us to come to the Lord. So we'll start at Hebrews 4, verse 14, and I'll read into chapter 5, verse 6. This is the word of God. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or actually empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Then chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers The flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our high priest, for being so accessible to us as your children. And so speak to us, Lord. Teach us your truth. In Christ's name I pray it. Amen. I like movies. I think most people who know me know that about me. I I like movies. Now, what I will also tell you, what you may not know about me, is I don't always like the actor away from the movie. Do Do you get what I mean? A lot of actors think that by being an actor, which makes them a lot of money and makes them famous, that they should be able to tell you and I how to live. Lots of times I just want to say, would you please stop talking? And just act. Keep your day job. Do what you're good at. Stick to that. At any rate, I read an interview with one of the actors that I do like as an actor, Oscar-winning actor Jeff Bridges. He played the part of the lawman Rooster Cogburn in the remake of True Grit. 
And I think he made John Wayne very proud in the process. When asked about that movie, Jeff Bridges said this. Sticking with a marriage, that's true grit, man. Couldn't agree more. Bridges obviously means that as a, as a man, as a married man, he's sticking with something that he committed to long, long ago. I mean, that's a rarity in Hollywood. Jeff Bridges has been married to his wife, Susan, for 43 years. 43 years. But in the interview that I read from a few years ago, Bridges was asked to identify his worst character trait. And he said this, not loving enough, not having enough compassion, not having enough empathy, not having enough wisdom. He says, my wife and I have been married for now 43 years. I'm deeply in love with her. But every once in a while, we'll get into what I like to refer to as our deep, ancient battle. It's always very elusive and it's hard to find the real kernel of it. But basically, it is about this. You don't get it. You don't get what it is like to be me. Neither of us really understands, he says, what it's like to be that other person. And that is true. In the first part of this series, we looked at Hebrews chapter 6 and 7, where we learned that Jesus is not only our Savior, but he is also our high priest. Now, for those of you who were not here last week, and again, I would encourage you to maybe watch that message on YouTube, you might be wondering, what does that mean that Jesus is our high priest? And so as our high priest, Jesus Christ teaches us two things. Number one, that he has paved the way for our access to God. Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So Jesus Christ is our high priest. He's our mediator. He has enabled us to have access to God. He's paved the way. That's your blanks in the outline. Number two, that he has guaranteed, guaranteed our access to God forever. So let's look in Hebrews chapter 7. And I'll start reading at verse 18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. In other words, the new covenant is so much better. That's really the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. The old covenant does not measure up to the new covenant. For the law, it says in verse 19, made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. If nothing else, I hope we can be thankful today to live in the new covenant. I, I certainly am. And I hope that you as a follower of Christ understand that. We're in a better covenant through the new covenant instead of the old. Why? Because the new gives us access to God in a way that the people of God in the old covenant never had. It's still fuzzy with you possibly about trying to figure this out. I think you're going to find out a whole lot more today about what it means to be a high priest as we look at some of the characteristics of Jesus, our high priest. 
So I want you to know that in the first verse of our text today, God lets us know what he thinks about Jesus. So in our text, look at this verse, because verse 14, 15, 16, we're going to highlight throughout these main points coming up. Verse 14 says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. So the Bible doesn't just call Jesus our high priest. He calls Jesus our great high priest. Why? Why is Jesus called our great high priest? I got three reasons, and that's the main body of this sermon, the main body of this message. So I hope you're following in the outline. Here's the first of three because of his identity, because of his identity. And his identity has two parts. Number one, he is human. He is human. Look at chapter five, verse one. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Jesus was a man because he was born. Very, very important, the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas, the fact that Jesus didn't just come to earth as a full-grown adult. He was born into this world. He was He is every bit human. But number two, he is divine. He's not just human. He's divine. Again, in verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. All right. Think about that. Here's the question. How great is he? The answer is so great that even heaven can't hold him. So great that even heaven can't. Can't hold him. The text says he's God's son who has passed through the heavens. The humanity of Jesus Christ is highlighted in the book of Hebrews. But so is the divinity of Jesus Christ. That he's not just man, but he's also God. So Jesus is the God man. He's fully God and fully man. And there's never before been anyone like him. In the Old Testament, the high priest of Israel was special. He wore a golden breastplate on which was inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. When he went into the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies that we discussed last week, it was as if he brought the whole nation with him to atone for their sin. And in the course of carrying out their duties, different high priests in Jewish history passed through the veil in the temple or in the tabernacle. But our text tells us that Jesus himself, Jesus himself passed through the heavens into the very presence of God himself. As such, Jesus has won the victory through through his death and resurrection. He's won the victory over the power of sin, over the power of death. And yes, even over the power of judgment. And as he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he continues to make intercession on our behalf. That is, he pleads our case to the Father forever. He's our advocate. He's like the best defense attorney you could ever have. How great is that? Ravi Zacharias, if you ever heard that name, Ravi is a... An evangelist, he's a Christian apologist, he's a philosopher, um, he's a great man of God. And 
By the way, Ravi Zacharias needs our prayers as right now he's battling cancer. He was born in India, lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and he writes this when he says, Faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power, so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a billionaire. Okay, you are a billionaire. Yeah, do you know a billionaire? I don't know a billionaire. I might, you know, possibly know a millionaire, but I don't know a billionaire. But let's say you are a billionaire and you have three $20 bills in your pocket. You go to pick up your lunch at a restaurant. You go curbside. And again, I know that a billionaire doesn't need to go pick up his lunch. But could you work with me here? Just, just stay with me, all right? Okay, he goes to pick up his lunch at a restaurant. It costs right at $20. You, he drives off. And later in the day, this billionaire, you, reach into your pocket, only to discover there's only one $20 bill in your pocket. So you think... Huh, I know I had two $20 bills left, so either I gave the food server too much money or it fell out of my pocket. So the question is, what are you going to do? I mean, are you going to go back to the restaurant and look around on the floor, on the ground, and see if you can find your 20? Or are you going to go back and complain to the manager about how they shortchanged you, took your extra 20? No, you're not going to do that. What are you going to do? You're going to shrug and go, I lost a $20 bill. Big deal. Why are you going to do that? Because you're a billionaire. You're a billionaire. You lost $20. Big deal. You are way too rich to be worried about that kind of loss. Now, this week, or for some of you this month, these last two months, things didn't work out like you thought that they should. This pandemic has hit people really hard, not only in the health area and the medical area, but some of you, at the sound of my voice, have suffered a real loss in the stock market. Some of you have suffered a real loss in your livelihood. Some of you have lost a job. Some of you don't have the income you had before. Some of you own a business, and your business has taken a serious hit during this pandemic. These are real losses. So the question is, what are you going to do about it if you're a Christian? Will this setback disrupt your contentment? Will you shake your fist at God? Will you toss and turn at night? Will you sink into a deep depression over your losses? And if you do, I have to say to you that it's because you have totally lost touch with your identity. You don't know how truly rich you really are. As a Christian, you are a spiritual billionaire. You're a spiritual billionaire, which means there's no way you should be wringing your hands over twenty dollars. Verse 14, I love verse 14, so let's look at it once more. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. And one passage, another passage says, pass through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, when I was reading Simon Kistemacher on this, 
he mentions something that I think is something worth considering. And that is, in the day in which we live, in the, in the world in which we live, you've heard this, I've heard this, I bet you've heard this, where people say all the time, you just got to let go and let God. He, he addressed that and he said, no, you really don't need to let go. You need to hold on. You need to hold on. You need to grab hold of your faith, the reality of your faith, that your faith is built on the rock of Jesus Christ and the truth and the authority of God's word. You need to grab hold of that and you need to hold on during this pandemic with all you have. Hold on. Don't let go. Hold on to the faith that you profess because it's real. So, again, why is Jesus such a great high priest? Well, number one, because of his identity. And you know what? As a follower of Christ, you have accepted and received that identity. You belong to him. And so his identity is yours. He lives in you. His spirit lives in you. Embrace that identity. The second reason that Jesus is such a great high priest is because of his compassion. Because of his compassion, which takes us to the next verse, which is verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. And I said sympathize because that's the way it used to be. And now they've changed the word to empathize. I think it's probably more appropriate. Who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one in Jesus who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. John Owen was a theologian in the 17th century. And he points out that. A double negative is for emphasis. So one translation of Hebrews 4.15 says this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot empathize with our weaknesses. So John Owen points out that, quote, a double negation, we do not, who cannot, doth strongly and vehemently affirm. In the Old Testament times, the high priest was selected from among men. And of course, some were better at this than others. The high priest simply had to be able to deal with people in their struggles. Not only that, he simply had to be able to sympathize or better yet to empathize with the people in their struggles. But even the best, even the best high priest could not understand what the people actually felt. Do you know how difficult it is for a person to actually open up to you and actually share And admit, I've got a problem. As a pastor, I know how hard that is because it really is hard for a person to come see me and actually open up and say, I've got a problem. Which leads me to say that if you're listening today and you are struggling with some problem that you have, you're struggling in some way personally, I want to say to you that you can tell me about it. Now, it may be that you can't get to me. During this pandemic, but you can sure call me. You can sure write me. You can text me. You can let me know. I'd like to talk to you. I won't criticize you. I won't judge you. I will simply try to help you for two reasons. One, because I care. And two, because I've been there. I've had problems. And in some ways, I still have problems. And so I still have to go to to my pastor and talk to my pastor about the problems that I have. Thankfully, I can still talk to him just about every week. 
Maybe it will help you to know, and if you don't know me that well, that I've had my share of difficulties in my life, which I think makes me able to understand when people have struggles. But maybe it will help you even more to know that Jesus Christ had his share of difficulties in his life because he was not only God, he was also man. So listen again to verse 15. It's such a beautiful verse. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This verse is oftentimes misunderstood. And the reason verse 15 is misunderstood is because the writer, when he speaks of weaknesses, is not talking about the tendency that we have as human beings to give in to temptation, but more so our capacity to feel the temptation. What I'm saying is that when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has been tempted in every way just as we are, in verse 15, that doesn't simply mean that Jesus understands what you and I go through, whether it's temptation or just the difficulties of life. What you need to know is that Jesus was tempted beyond, beyond the point where you and I give in. In other words, Jesus really knows what it feels like to be weak. So let me ask you, if if Jesus Christ, as God, was incapable of sin, then, then how, how could he experience genuine temptation? After all, could he really empathize with fallen sinners like, like me and like you, seeing that he himself could not yield to temptation? And, And look, theologians have debated that for centuries. On the one hand, we simply cannot know what Jesus endured by way of temptation. So let's talk about his temptation for a moment. Matthew chapter 4 records the the wilderness temptations where the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the devil appeared to him at his weakest state physically and tempted him. And every time Jesus countered those temptations with what? Scripture. He quoted Scripture to Satan. The word of God. And then in Gethsemane, Matthew 26 records that. Luke 22 actually goes a little bit further in the discussion of Gethsemane and says that Jesus, in his agony of temptation in the garden over being crucified, over becoming sin for us, he was so in agony and so in stress, he sweat great drops of blood. Clearly, temptation was not an easy proposition for the Son of God. So, on the one hand, we simply cannot know how much Jesus endured. But on the other hand, we have to trust the Word of God when it says that Jesus did, in fact, suffer in such a way as to experience the, va- the very same troubles that you and I face as human beings. Larry Richards tells the story of two prisoners of war who are being tortured so that they will make a propaganda video a television announcement denouncing the United States. After two months, one of the two prisoners can't take it anymore, so he gives in. But the other prisoner resists for another year, goes through all that torture, which continues to increase. And the point he makes is that the one who continued to resist knows a lot more about weakness than the one who gave in at first. I mean, I hope you get it. 
The Bible is telling us that Jesus is such a great high priest because he knows more about what it means to be weak than any of us. Why? Because more often than not, you and I, we don't resist. We don't fight it. And Jesus battled temptation. We simply give in, but not Jesus. He conquered his temptations. He's been tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. And he even resisted to the point of death, the scripture says. It doesn't say to the point of dying. It actually says to the point of death. Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You've not yet resisted to the point of death. But Jesus did. And so why is Jesus such a great high priest? Because of his identity. And then secondly, because of his compassion. And then the third and final reason is because of his superiority. And that brings us to the next verse, which is verse 16. All right, we have in verse 14 that Jesus is superior in the sense that he's passed through the heavens. He's the son of God. In verse 15, he's a man. He empathizes with us in our weaknesses because he's been tempted just like we are. And then in verse 16 is the the catch-all. Let us then, because of this, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So don't miss this. The Jewish idea of God that he is holy is true. But when you think of the word holy, what do you think of? Not like me. That's that's what I think of. Holy. Not like me. That's what the Jews thought as well. To them, holy meant different. Incapable of truly entering into man's troubles because, after all, he's God. And it's not just the Jews. The Greeks of Jesus' day said the primary attribute of God was apatheia, which we get our word apathy, which represented a total inability to feel anything at all. So in short, God was seen as detached. He was seen as unapproachable. He was seen as uncaring. And the writer of the Hebrews wants to make sure he's very clear to us when he says that idea is all wrong. God is not unfeeling. He is not uncaring. He is not unapproachable. He says here, approach the throne of grace. One translation actually says with boldness. But it says to approach the throne of God, God's throne of grace, with confidence. And when the writer says we should approach the throne with confidence, he actually means, in quotes, without concealment. That's what confidence means, without concealment. That is, we should not try to hide our sins and our weaknesses, no matter how ashamed we are of them. Remember, we come to receive mercy. We come to receive mercy, and only sinners need mercy. But we can do so confidently because our confidence is in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We trust in the work of Christ and what he has done. We don't trust in ourselves. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in Christ alone. So look with me in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Every high priest is selected from among the people, is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. 
That's why he has to offer sacrifice for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. So imagine a mother who sees her child get hurt, and she is unable to respond to this emergency because she cares so much. She's literally frozen. She's unable to intervene on her child's behalf. And the word in this verse, the word is able to deal gently, is a word that suggests the idea of being able to both feel what the person in trouble feels, but at the same time to be able to act on behalf of the injured person. So God is saying to us this morning, you don't have to shy away from me because of what you've done or out of fear for what I will do to you. All you need to do is come to me. All you need to do is come to me and receive mercy and grace. Now, what is mercy and what is grace? Mercy is when God does not give you what you really deserve. I mean, some of you that are teenagers, you're listening to me now. And do you understand mercy? It's when your parent lets you off the hook when they shouldn't have. They give you mercy. Grace, on the other hand, is when God does give to you What you don't deserve. That's grace. When God gives to you what you don't deserve. The high priest in Jesus' day, being a man, had to also offer sacrifices for his own sins. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. As God, he didn't need to offer sacrifice for sin because he never sinned. And his sacrifice, it was once For all, so that Jesus Christ, the Lord, became our eternal source of salvation, which is why he is vastly superior to every other option in the universe to place your trust in. That brings us to our verse of the week, which is Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Please read it with me in your bulletin. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, Jesus says he does understand. He does get you. Jesus is the God who gets you. He gets you. What he's also saying is, you don't understand. You don't understand that as our high priest, Jesus makes it possible for us to connect with God. He's the one who urges us to come to God. He's the one who promises to never leave you, to never forsake you. If you're not a believer, if you're not a believer this morning, he wants you to release your life into his control. He wants you to trust him with your life. To trust Him with the truth of His Word. If you are a believer and the pressures of this life and the pressures of this pandemic are weighing you down, He wants to remove that burden from you. He wants to replace it with His peace. And He will do so so that you can live this day with your eyes open, with your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, And is sat down right now at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him today. Entrust your life to him. And live that out, not just today, but every day. By the grace of God. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, 
We praise you as our high priest. We praise you as our great high priest. We praise you for your identity as the God man. We praise you for your compassion that you understand us and you love us with an everlasting love. And we praise you for your superiority, that you're greater, you're better than any other option we could pursue. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would touch our hearts today as we worship you, that you would give us grace in the midst of this pandemic, that you would give us the help that we need. And only you know exactly what we need. But, Lord, please meet our needs. Keep our eyes upon you, that we might trust you, Lord, through this pandemic, that we might grow in your grace, even through the difficulties that we're facing. And thank you, Lord, for your love for us, for your grace and your mercy, for being there for us, for getting us, for knowing and understanding us and loving us in spite of who we are. We praise you for the the eternal life that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, keep our eyes upon you each and every day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, we will sing.